Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. everyone and welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 1, Episode 28, or Episode 18 under the old money, the end of the Danish dynasty. This is your regular reminder that the content of this episode is exactly the same as the corresponding episode in the History of England, and that I have restored this here merely for the sake of convenience. Also, you will notice in a second or two a change in the quality of recording, since the original was recorded when the world was young. We left off last week with Knut's death, aged somewhere between 40 and 50. His death came at an inconvenient time for his empire, since he left the succession rather unsecure. But before we start on all that, 
It's going to get a bit confusing unless I make sure that we've got all the relationships of the various pretenders to the English throne worked out. I've put a family tree on the website to help, but maybe it would be a good idea to have an introduction to the Dramatis Personae before we get into the meat of this week's episode. So we've got five groups that you need to worry about, and I've put these in chronological order. Firstly, there are the children of Athered the Unready. Athered was married twice, firstly to Elf Githu, with whom he had ten, yes that's ten children. But actually you can forget all of these, and actually you can forget about this Elf Githu as well. Then he married Emma of Normandy. He had another three children by her, two of which you do need to worry about. These are Alfred and Edward the Confessor, born somewhere around 1003 to 5. These two are living in Normandy with Emma's family, deserted by Emma when she decided to marry Canute. Then there's Canute's children. He also married twice, and spookily his first wife was also called Elf Gifu, called commonly Elf Gifu of Northampton, to differentiate her. He had two children by her, Sylvain the eldest and Harold, though most of the chronicles accuse Harold of having absolutely nothing to do with Canute, but that's just rumour, probably put around by Emma. Anyway, by the time of Canute's death, Svein has died after a disastrous period of rule in Norway, so you don't actually have to worry about Svein either, just worry about Harold. Harold was often called Harold Harefoot, on account of his speed and his talent for hunting, and he'd have been about 20 when Canute died. Elf Giffa of Northampton had been with her son Svein in Norway during his disastrous rule, and where she'd been even more unpopular than he had. But by the death of Canute, she was back in England, and desperate to see her second son Harold succeed to the English throne. And finally, Knut then put Elfgifu of Northampton aside, apparently without rancour, or at least not that survived in the chronicles, though it's a bit difficult to believe that Elfgifu didn't feel ever so slightly miffed. But anyway, he then married Emma of Normandy, Ethelred's widow. They had one son, Harthur Knut, who would have been about 17 at Knut's death, and therefore a little bit young. Meanwhile, of course, Emma was equally desperate to have Hathcanute become king, as desperate as Elf Gifu was to have Harold become king, and Hathcanute was also favoured by Canute. By the way, the Anglo-Saxons liked their queens to have Anglo-Saxon names as well, so they chose one for Emma, which happens to be Elf Gifu. No prizes for originality, but I guess it did keep things simple. Finally, just keep half an eye on the son of Edmund Ironside, Edward the Exile. You may remember that he fled to Hungary after Canute tried to kill him, and he's still over there for the moment, so actually for this episode you can forget about him as well. And just remember the powerful elves we talked about last week, Leofric of Mercia, Gudrun of Wessex and Seawood of Northumbria. Okay, all clear? So it's 1035, we've got the Anglo-Saxon Alfred and Edward in Normandy, we've got Harold in England, we've got Harthur Canute in Denmark, in the wings we've got Edward the Exile, we've got three powerful earls and two powerful queens. Before his death, it was pretty clear that Knut had intended that Harthur Knut would rule his empire, including Denmark and England. He had given Norway as a consolation prize to Elf Gifu of Northampton and his eldest son Svein, but they had made a hash of it and been thrown out by Magnus. This meant that Harthur Knut was under attack from Magnus in Denmark and could not come over to England to claim his inheritance. And the Witten in England were worried, with Magnus cutting up rough in Norway, they didn't like not having a king to prepare any defence that might be necessary. So there was a crisis, and the Witten was undecided, and split into parties. One party led by Emma and Goodwin was prepared to take the risk of electing an absent king, and declared for half a canute. The other party, led by Leofric, London, and almost all the thanes north of the Thames, 
wanted to postpone a decision until things were clearer in Norway and Denmark, so they proposed a regency. Their proposed regents were Alf Giffey of Northampton and Harold, though there's some indication that some of this party were also sympathetic to the claims of Alfred and Edward in Normandy. We've seen before that even in these early days, the English loved a good compromise, and the Witten were masters at it. So in the council held in Oxford in 1036, the Witten decided that Harold should indeed be regent, but that Emma should live at Winchester, surrounded by Harthur Canute's Huskarls, i.e. his personal household troops. The significance of this was that the royal treasury was there, and presumably this gave Emma and Harthur Canute some level of security. If Harthur Canute had been able to leave Denmark and come to England within a few months of this arrangement, he maybe could have succeeded to his inheritance, as Canute had intended. But he wasn't able to get back over for a year, and Alf Giffey and Harold prepared their position carefully. Harold very quickly seized the royal treasure against Emma's will. Emma hung on grimly in Winchester, and may well have responded by spreading rumours casting doubts on Harold's parentage. Elf Giffu and Harold, meanwhile, worked tirelessly to bring the thanes and earls round to the idea of Harold becoming king, binding men to them with oaths. In the process, they appear to have worked Goodwin round to their side as well, and this turns out to be pretty crucial. Before they could succeed, though, Alfred and Edward the Confessor enter the scene. For some reason, they decided that now was the perfect time to visit Mum. Given the distinct lack of affection Emma had displayed towards them, and the resentment that Edward the Confessor later showed towards her, this is more than a little strange. Rumours abound. Did Emma encourage their gamble in a desperate attempt to throw Harold off his stride? Or did Elf Giffu of Northampton trick them to come over? Whatever happened, they must have had some message. It seems really very unlikely that they would have taken such a risk without some assurances. Edward failed to make it over, beaten off by the weather and returning to Normandy. Alfred was not so lucky. He arrived on the south coast and set off for his mother in Winchester, but was intercepted by Goodwin and his retinue. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Goodwin tempted Alfred with the throne, and Alfred said, yeah, I'm interested, at which point Goodwin's men seized him and killed most of his men. Alfred was taken to Ely, probably now out of Goodwin's control, and as soon as he arrived he was savagely blinded and died soon afterwards of his wounds. Goodwin had made a friend of Harold, but it also made an enemy of Arthur Canute, and a particularly bitter enemy of Edward. Before the end of 1037, Harold and Alf Giffu's campaign had succeeded, and Harold was formally declared king. Harold immediately moved against Emma, and drove her out of the country. Interestingly, she didn't go to Normandy to join her son, but went instead to Baldwin, the Count of Flanders. This does kind of indicate that she was suspected of some evil doing towards her sons when they'd come over or at least an unnatural lack of affection towards them, and she realised that she wouldn't be safe in Normandy. She was to be in Flanders for three years, but at the time she must have thought that it was going to be very much longer. We don't know very much about Harold Herford, though we might suspect that this is as much the reign of Alf Giffu as it is of Harold. But there's no reason at all to suppose that within England itself he was anything but secure. Arthur Canute, meanwhile, had come to an agreement to Magnus in 1038 or 9, and from that point forward he was free to come and claim his inheritance. The nature of this peace agreement was that if either of them died without an heir, the other could claim their throne. The agreement is actually quite significant, because although it was probably not intended by Arthur Canute to cover England, and was only supposed to apply to Denmark, it is an agreement that's going to cause England quite a lot of pain in the future. 
So, for example, it's this agreement that legitimises Harald Hadrada's claim as successor to Magnus to the English throne in 1066. Anyway, Harthur Canute then set about planning to make a bid for England. But he knew that to dislodge Harald, he'd need a full-blown invasion. So he set about gathering a major fleet and army of over 60 ships, and moved his fleet to Bruges in 1039 to meet up with Emma. But still, he waited and didn't move on England. And then in 1040, he was saved the trouble when in March, Harold unexpectedly died. The Witan immediately turned to Harthur Canute and invited him to London, but Harthur Canute took his time to arrive, and didn't get there till about June. When he did arrive, there would have been many English lords feeling very worried indeed about their futures, in particular, you'd think, Goodwin. But Goodwin, as he was to prove throughout his colourful life, knew the way to his new king's heart, and he knew how to survive. He presented Harthur Canute with a gilded galley fully manned with 80 soldiers and plenty of gold and silver. He swore that he'd hated having to arrest poor old Alfred and swore that it was just following orders. Harthur Canute was either convinced, dazzled or recognised that Goodwin was not easily disposed of and so Goodwin survived to fight another day. Of Elf Gifu's fate, we know absolutely nothing. She simply disappears from the record so speculation is useless. Your guess is as good as mine. Our knowledge of Harthur Canute's character is almost as vague as this. On the plus side, he was clearly a man for whom family was important. His concern for his half-brothers seems genuine enough, and he did take the death of Alfred very personally. He did prosecute Godwin when he arrived, who only survived by the present of the aforementioned ship, and by oaths sworn by many of the leading magnates of the kingdom. Harthur Canute also looked for other people to blame for Alfred's death, doing things like depriving Bishop Liffing of his see since he also blamed him. On the following year, he invited the surviving brother Edward to come to England, and in 1041 made him his heir. And thereby the Anglo-Saxon line stood to recover its position. But there's plenty of negative evidence as well about Harthur Canute, and there's no doubt that he'd inherited his father's lack of Ruth. He had Harold's body dug up and thrown into the marshes. And he betrayed Edwulf, the Earl of Bamborough, to his enemies, a crime particularly harsh, since Edwulf had been granted his special peace, and this essentially made Harthur Canute an oathbreaker, which was no small thing in those days. Harthur Canute also faced a particular problem, which he solved brutally and without mercy. He had with him sixty ships stuffed full of soldiers, who presumably had expected plunder in the traditional Viking idiom. To compensate, Harthur Canute imposed a one-off tax of £32,000. The English were absolutely horrified at the severity of this tax, and Harthur Canute's Huskarls had to be dispatched to enforce collection. When Worcester resisted, for example, the city was burned to the ground. But really, that's pretty much it. That's all we know. The chronicler of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was very clear in his view when he remarked that Harthur Canute never did anything kingly while he ruled. And maybe it's the epitaph of a contemporary that we just need to accept. Harthur Canute was only two years as King of England, and then he died suddenly as he drank at the wedding feast of his father's retainer, Toby the Proud, in June 1042. And with his death, the male line of Canute came to an end. There were other claimants to the throne. Magnus of Norway, for example, claimed the throne by dint of his agreement in 1038 with Harth Canute. But there was a groundswell of popular feeling in favour of the ancient line of Cherdich in the form of Edward. And he was immediately elected king by popular acclamation. None of Canute's extended family survived or stood any chance of challenging this. But Magnus successfully invaded Denmark, and there he began to prepare for an invasion of England. 
For the next five years, until Magnus' death in 1047, the English were constantly aware of Magnus' threat and aware of the need to meet it. England was pretty much united against it, with the outstanding exception of Emma, Edward's mother. She reputedly put all her wealth at Magnus' disposal to help him invade and kick out her very own son. Nice. So what is it about Emma then? It's very difficult to credit her attitude towards her sons by Ethelred. She seems to have set her heart on her children by Knut having the throne. And if they couldn't have the throne, well then, none of her others were going to have it, and none of them were good enough. Maybe her attitude is that she'd found her true partner in Knut, and simply couldn't bear to see the dynasty that he destroyed come back to power. This is slightly barking, but it does seem to be the way it is. She was also pretty ambitious, and prepared to do pretty much anything for power. So thus her original marriage to Knut, her previous husband's destroyer, had the price of the abandonment of her children, Edward and Alfred. And possibly her cold-hearted encouragement of them to visit England to destabilise Harold, despite the risk to them. We'll never really know, I suspect, but it's very telling that despite her attempt to control history, by commissioning a chronicle of her life, her reputation did not survive intact. Either way, Edward had now had enough, and in 1043... He took the three most powerful lords of England to Winchester, Goodwin, Leofric and Seward, and there he took possession of Emma's treasure and confiscated all her lands. Emma's political influence was now over, though she was apparently allowed to live out her life at court, and she died in 1052. The first few years of Edward the Confessor's rule were carried out in some anxiety in international politics. Edward was in a unique position for a new king in Anglo-Saxon England, He had absolutely no constituency, he'd spent most of his life in exile in Normandy, and so he had no personal connections with the leading men of the kingdom. He arrived in a situation with three really well-established and powerful earls. One of them was deeply implicated in the death of his brother. In addition, he'd lived the majority of his life in Normandy, in a court that itself had adopted the culture and values of the French. So he's personally much more comfortable with that way of life, rather than the traditions of the Anglo-Saxon court. In response, he did therefore introduce a French element to the court, and this gave him a reputation for gathering foreigners around him. As we'll hear next week, he was to get into quite a bit of trouble for this, but the truth is, evidence from his charters, that at this stage it really was the Anglo-Scandinavian lords who held the real power, and Edward seemed happy enough for this to be the case. Edward has a reputation for mildness and otherworldliness that might explain this, but I don't think we should be too fooled by this. He's not a bloodless man, It's worth noting, for example, that Edward had a passion for hunting, just like pretty much every other king of his time. But anyway, before we go into Edward's reign, let me flag a couple of issues that attach themselves to his study. The first is the issue of his character and his motivation. Put simply, was he a weak, vacillating man who was crushed by the Goodwins, or a clever, reasonable, determined bloke who managed to preserve peace and prosperity in very troubled times? We'll come back to this debate at the end of the episode and probably next week as well. One of the other problems with Edward's reign is that it's too often seen simply as a precursor to the famous events that followed in 1066. And while some of the events of his reign did in fact affect the outcome in 1066, he surely does deserve to be studied on his own merit. I have to fess up and say that I didn't know much about Edward before this podcast, and I have found it really, really interesting. The man's an enigma, and his success was not of the earth-shattering kind, but 20 years of peace and prosperity isn't a bad achievement. Anyway, so back to the early years of his reign. England faced a fluid situation across the water in Scandinavia as Magnus of Norway 
and a chap called Svein Estrithson slugged it out for control of Denmark. Now there is a deceptively simple name, by the way. It looks easy when you've written it down, but you try and say Svein Estrithson a few times very quickly and see where you get. So I'm going to call him just Svein from now on. On the face of it, Svein was a better choice for Edward, since his claim to the English throne would be much weaker. And Svein was also supported by Goodwin, whose wife was related to Svein. But Edward followed a very neutral policy, in fact. In 1046, Svein asked for 50 ships to help him against Magnus, but against Goodwin's advice, Edward refused the request, too cautious to risk losing the fleet that protected the coast against Magnus. As a result, Magnus was accepted as King of Denmark, and England stood in real danger of invasion. But then Magnus died. The danger receded as Svein and Harold Hadrado, Magnus' successor as King of Norway, fought it out. Harold made peace with Edward, and a further request by Svein for aid, despite Goodwin's continued support, again went unanswered. One of the interesting things about all of this is the relationship between Edward, Goodwin and his earls. The Goodwin family was now enormously powerful. He himself was the Earl of Wessex, his son Harold was the Earl of East Anglia, his son Svein was the Earl of a region that included five shires, and his daughter was now the king's wife. But despite this, his desire to give Svein Estrasson support was denied. With the support of his other earls, Leofric and Seward, Edward did hold a balance of power, and he was able to exert control, and he did exercise it. But it's also true to say that Seward and Leofric themselves always appear strangely ambivalent towards Edward and Goodwin, sometimes supporting one and sometimes the other. The whole setup was very volatile and a mix of politics and personalities. The extent and limit of Goodwin's power was also evident in the affair of his son, Svein. Svein Goodwinson was Goodwin's eldest son and had been promoted to an earldom in 1043 and he actually he'd made a creditable fist of it by all accounts. Then in 1046 he outraged public opinion and Edward's opinion by abducting and trying to marry Ed Guthu, the abbess of Learminster. His request to marry was refused but Goodwin seems to have been able to save the earldom for him. Despite this, a year later Svein hotly abandoned his earldom and took refuge with Svein Estrasen in Denmark. The two Sveins together thing is forcing me to try and say Estrasen, which is upsetting. He quickly managed to get himself back into trouble and was thrown out for some unspecified crime in 1049, which left him no choice but to try Edward again. So in 1049, Svein Goodwinson appeared with eight ships to plead his case with the king, but Edward would not be persuaded. So Svein turned to his cousin Earl Bjorn on ship near Pevensey. Despite Bjorn's initial misgivings, he eventually agreed to add his weight to Svein's side. But on the way to see the king, Svein had Bjorn killed. Who knows why? It appears absolutely senseless. Can't think of any reason for it. Maybe Svein resented it Bjorn's initial refusal to help him. We'll never know. But anyway, Edward now immediately summoned an assembly of the whole army and he declared Svein to be a man without honour. He uses a Scandinavian term for this. He declared Svein to be neething. Svein was deserted by six of his eight ships, and he fled to Flanders. Yet despite all of this, incredibly Svein was pardoned and returned to his office in the following year, presumably with the influence of Goodwin. So what are we to make of all this? It's obviously a long time ago, and the chronicles are conflicting and probably biased and a bit patchy, but it's surely difficult to read this as strong leadership and the rule of law. I mean, the guy's abducted an abbess, chucked up his office, committed a further crime in Denmark, murdered his cousin... And yet here he is back in England, all is forgiven. What does a man have to do to get put into a disciplinary procedure here? 
It looks awfully like a king who's unable to refuse the demands of Goodwin that his son be taken back. Surely Edward needed some assertiveness training at this point. Public opinion must clearly have been against Thane. His brother Harold, for example, was clearly outraged. It seems difficult to believe that Seward and Leofric would be anything other than outraged as well. And yet Edward let him get away with it. Weakness or not, we now come to the other side of Edward, because it seems equally clear that while he was a bit of a pushover in this matter of Svein, he did resent the indignity very much, and he now had a strategy to get back on top. So he began to build his position up against Goodwin. He brought in some French supporters, who he knew that he could rely on. So, for example, Ralph of Mont was made the Earl of Hereford, Robert of Jumiege was made Bishop of London, and then in 1050 he promoted Robert to the Archbishopric of Canterbury, overturning the election of Edsiege, who was a kinsman of Goodwin. In 1049, Edward courted popularity by starting to disband the fleet, and he ended the much-hated Heerguild in 1051. Now this seems like a really risky decision, so soon after appearing beset by the danger of invasion from Norway, and with recent Danish raids on the Essex coast. It might just be that he did make some arrangements with towns along the coast to provide ships, but the arrangements with what became known as the Sank Ports was never really made very clear. One explanation of this whole thing that seems to meet the facts is that Edward was in too weak a position in 1049 and in 1050 to resist Goodwin, but that he was determined to get his man in the end, and he slowly built up his position so that when he had the chance to remove Goodwin, he would be ready. So the abolition of the Heer Guild was part of a general plan to build his popularity, and he brought in French friends to counterbalance the Earl's power. His chance came in 1052. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that the king's friend, Count Eustace of Boulogne, visited in 1051, met the king, and then went homeward. In Canterbury, Eustace picked a fight with the locals, killing and wounding several townsmen in a fight over the provision of lodgings. The locals fought right back, and Eustace fled and complained of his treatment to the king. Edward immediately ordered Goodwin to punish the townsmen, despite the fact that the affray was clearly Eustace's fault. To give him his due, Goodwin saw the injustice of this, and he refused. Edward immediately gave orders to convene a council to decide Goodwin's fate on the 8th of September. Is it too devious of me to suggest that Edward and Eustace cooked up the affair in Canterbury specifically with Goodwin in mind? There's no evidence of it, it has to be said, but it seems entirely possible. Edward had been made to eat crow, by the man at least partly responsible for the death of his brother. The return of Svein must have been deeply humiliating. He had had Goodwin's daughter forced on him, and he was not master in his own house. He must have known that in his arrogance Goodwin would have hated the idea of punishing the people of Canterbury. Firstly, it was the hated foreigners who had caused the problem in the first place, and secondly, these were Goodwin's own people in his own earldom. Inflicting punishment on them would have surely struck hard at his pride. Well, if it was cooked up, it worked, and maybe it worked too well. In his arrogance, Goodwin probably thought he could get away with this, but he realised that his refusal was dangerously close to rebellion. So he gathered his sons and his army at Tetbury, close to Gloucester where the king was staying, and by the 1st of September, he had a substantial army in the field. He basically demanded the surrender of Count Eustace and his men, as well as Earl Ralph in Hereford. Goodwin's claim was that he was simply seeking the king's advice and aid about how they might avenge the insult to the king and the whole nation. But this was obviously window dressing and that was clear to all. But it was also quite clever because Goodwin was trying to make this an issue about the honest Englishman against the perfidious foreigner. But clearly if Edward gave up Eustace then the real king would be Goodwin. 
Edwin might not be the most ruthless of men, but he clearly wasn't a blithering idiot either. And at the same time, Edward had his support around him. Though he was at first surprised by the size of Goodwin's army, Edward's nephew Ralph was there, and the Earl Seward and Leofric could not countenance at this date such a bare-faced challenge to the traditional authority of the king. So they called up more of their men, and their army soon matched Goodwin. Civil war now looked inevitable. But this time around, Goodwin bottled it. Maybe his army was the weaker of the two. No actual numbers are ever mentioned. Maybe he realised that public opinion would not wear this revolt. Maybe he simply wanted to avoid bloodshed, though in the light of later events that does seem a bit unlikely. Or maybe the tradition of the Witten was too strong to argue with. Because when the Witten decided that the matter should be discussed again in London in two weeks' time, Goodwin had essentially lost. Because in the interim, Edward's army was swollen by Seward's men from the distant north. But meanwhile, Goodwin's men crept away. They knew the king had faced Goodwin down. By the time of the meeting in London, Goodwin really knew he'd lost. Edward summoned Goodwin and his son Harold to appear at the court. Interestingly, Spain was declared outlaw even before the meeting. Edward simply could not wait to undo a wrong that must have stuck in his throat. Goodwin negotiated for hostages, was refused and in turn refused to answer the charges. So Edward had his revenge. Goodwin and Harold were outlawed and Goodwin fled to Flanders and Harold to Ireland. Despite the passage of centuries, you can almost feel Edward's joy. Leofric's son Elfgar was given Harold's earldom of East Anglia, a thane called Odda was given the western portion of Wessex as an earldom, Spear Haffock, Goodwin's man as Bishop of London, was sent packing, and a Norman put in his place. Even more interestingly, Edward took revenge on Goodwin's daughter, Edith. The fact that Edith was also Edward's wife didn't seem to make any difference. So Edith was stripped of all her money and sent off to a nunnery. For the first time as king, Edward was now genuinely his own man. Edward's character has been a matter of continual debate, and it is really difficult to tell. Was he weak and vacillating, and did he just fail to cope with his powerful subjects? Or was he a clever, determined, if pious man, a survivor who managed to preserve peace for over 20 years, while powerful magnates struggled for power? There are some things people do agree on. He had a benign manner, which attracted many of the people who met him. He preferred a simple life, and he possessed the piety that was to earn him canonisation and the title of confessor. The traditional interpretation, I guess, is that Edward was a nice but weak bloat in a situation he couldn't control. That he found the strength of will to assert himself was crushed, as we'll hear next week, and then as a result withdrew into himself and his Westminster Church project and let the Goodwins pretty much do as they liked. More modern interpretations played all of this down, Everyone accepts he's no William the Conqueror, but later studies tend to take the heat out of it, suggesting that it was only when Goodwin overreached himself over Spain that Edward felt he needed to react, and was actually offended. My own view for what it's worth is that Edward bitterly resented Goodwin's power and manner, and never forgave him for the death of his brother. I suspect in these early years he bided his time, and worked out the way of the land. He even disarmed Goodwin by accepting his daughter Edith as a wife. But I think this marriage was a sham, there's the persistent rumour that the marriage was never consummated. As soon as he had the chance, Edward packed her off to a nunnery without the servant she could have expected to take with her. He really, really didn't have to do this. It was clear that the argument was with Goodwin, not his daughter, and why be so petty as to refuse her servants? I think both of these things suggest there's very little affection there. When Goodwin came back to power, she is again seen as one of Edward's inner circle, but my guess is that Edward had little choice in that.
when Edward had a chance to destroy Goodwin, he moved fast and energetically, and indeed actually prepared the way for it, whether or not he conspired with Eustace, for which admittedly there is not one shred of evidence. So I fall into the camp that sees Edward as a rather weak man, but a man capable of bearing a grudge, and with the necessary determination to plan and work for Goodwin's downfall. But I also think the dispute was personal with Goodwin, and with the exception of Swain, who clearly crossed the line, I don't think he held a grudge against Goodwin's other sons, particularly Harold, who was such an affable, personable man. But look, this is obviously just my interpretation, and could well fall into the tripe category. Well anyway, let's leave Edward there then, feeling happy and celebrating his freedom for another week. Without wanting to be guilty of a plot spoiler, next week of course Goodwin returns, and Edward's bid for freedom has failed. Nonetheless, we'll hear how, despite all the political shenanigans, Edward's reign is basically a success story, despite its aftermath. So that's it for this week. Have a great week, and I hope you'll tune in next week for the last instalment of the Edward Confessor story. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.